All right, well, <clears throat> it's good to see you guys. We're going to continue on in our survey of church history, and we're going to start today uh, digging a little more deeply into really the history of the apostolic church, the first century church that is principally um, launched for us in the, in the book of Acts. <clears throat> of course, as I've said, we're not going to uh, spend a tremendous amount of time going through each chapter and verse of Acts, uh, really not going to do an expositional study of Acts, but really a survey of Acts as it reflects uh, this first 30 years of the New Testament church. Um, and so that's going to be kind of our approach. Uh, we're going to take a bit of a broad sweeping look today of the first several chapters. I'm not exactly sure how far we'll get in our survey today, but, um, but we'll, we'll get as far as we can. Um, and, and then we'll kind of continue on and move forward through this, this, uh, this, really this historical record of the early church that Luke has penned for us in, uh, in the power and inspiration of the Spirit. And um, it gives us this great... A testimony of God's work, a continuing work of salvation and redemption. So, as we've talked about, Matthew chapter 16, we saw the promise of the church as Jesus responded to Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he made this promise that I will build my church. So, there's this future promise that he pronounces there. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see that fulfillment of that promise begin. Obviously, it's not complete, of course, but the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise of Christ building his church begins in Acts chapter 2. We have some introductory material to that great event at Pentecost um, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus speaking to the the disciples there and, and before his ascension. But, but Pentecost is really considered the, the launch point, if you will, the birth, if you will, of the New Testament church as, as about 120 uh, believers, disciples were gathered there in the upper room, the 11 uh, original disciples, less Judas, uh, and then Matthias uh, gathered with them as he was called there at the end of chapter 1. You have the women is, that's referenced, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, they're all gathered together there. And... And then suddenly and powerfully, the Holy Spirit comes and, and fills them, and you have uh, what, what is the sound of a mighty rushing wind. So this is a, this is a miraculous event in, in terms of God's redemptive plan in, in history. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit to fill His people, to fill those who believe in Christ by faith for salvation. And so that's the inauguration of this indwelling event, and they were suddenly filled. They began to speak both with boldness, but also miraculously in other languages um, that could be understood by all those that were gathered there. The scripture refers to Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven who had gathered there, who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So this is a massive, uh, miraculous, powerful event. But I think it'll, it'll be helpful for us to recall some of the important uh, points of context for this event that, that really, again, give us this, this sweeping view and vision of this wonderful work of God as He providentially accomplishes His purposes in and through the events of history and really <clears throat> the, the things that set the stage for this tremendous birth of the New Testament church and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and all that took place there in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, you have 
some tremendous um, events and movements in history that you see really God had used and orchestrated to really set the stage for this particular event. If you go back to Matthew chapter 28, uh, you see the Great Commission there at the end of, of, of Matthew's Gospel, where you have the apostles, the, the, the disciples, the eleven at that point, are gathered there in Galilee. And Jesus says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. I think it's important for us to continue to remind ourselves that that kind of, uh, that kind of proclamation on the part of Christ to his disciples uh, did not necessarily land on them with tremendous clarity. They, they, didn't, they didn't see everything that they eventually would see in terms of how this is going to be possible, how it's going to happen. And we have to remember Jesus was crucified. This whole, this whole endeavor, this whole enterprise suddenly looked really, really bleak. And you have Peter even denying that he even knew Christ shortly before this time. Now they're experiencing and interacting with the resurrected Christ, some of them not even believing at first, right? So there's even doubt in, in whether or not this has really happened. And yet, he gives them this commission, this, this mission, that you're going to do this thing, but you're not going to do this thing locally. It's going to be something that takes place throughout the entire world. So it's a pretty overwhelming, daunting, possibly fear-inducing, perplexing kind of mission here that he's, he's announcing to them. And in fact, you even see some of that confusion in Acts chapter 1, where before the ascension, he, you have them asking him, are you now going to usher in your kingdom? I mean, is it going to happen now? So there's still not a lot of tremendous clarity about really how, in the particulars, in, in time and space, in reality, this is going to be accomplished. This is, what, what is going to be our role? You have this, this great commission. It was proclaimed basically in a, in a broad way in, in Matthew chapter 28. But then you have a little more detail, a little more specificity that he provides before his ascension on the Mount of Olives. There in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, he says, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, that would have been really helpful, right? I mean, if you know that you've been commissioned to take this message into the entire world, it would be great to have that done through the context of an earthly kingdom where Christ is king. That would have been really helpful. That would have been very comforting. But he responds and says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. So now, now we're getting a little more specificity about some of the means by which this is going to be accomplished. It's going to be accomplished through the power that you're going to receive when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, a little more tactical information, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So now we're getting a little more specificity to the, the nature of the mission, the sort of the geographic scope of the mission, or if you will, the progression of the spread of that mission, and the promise of empowerment. In other words, this is going to be a mission that's not going to be accomplished by you and your own strength. It's going to be accomplished in and through the power of the Holy Spirit working through you to accomplish His purpose. 
But in fact, there is this reiteration that it is ultimately a global mission, just like he had said it would be when he gave that commission in Matthew chapter 28. So you have this this large-scale vision for where this is going, for what this commission, this mission really entails. You have the promise of power, and, and so there they are awaiting this event. Now, it's interesting to look at the sweep of history to recognize how this is going to be accomplished, even in some of the practical, providential ways that God set this up for it to be accomplished. You have, you could start with uh, just the, the fact of the dispersion of the Jewish people through past foreign conquest and captivity. You see that referenced in the Old Testament. You see that referenced in secular history and, and ancient times, ancient world history. Uh, but you have this, this reality at that present time that Jews were dispersed wide, widely, far and wide. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, in his work on the story of Christianity, says this, For centuries before the birth of Jesus, the number of Jews living outside of Palestine had been increasing. Dating back to the Old Testament times, there were numerous Jews in Persia and Mesopotamia. In Egypt, they'd even built a temple in the 7th century B.C. and another one five centuries later. By the time of Jesus, there were sizable Jewish communities in every major city in the Roman Empire. And even with this dispersion, <clears throat> they still maintained what Gonzalez refers to as a strong emotional and religious connection with the land and their ancestors. So you have, you have the actual living out of life in communities all throughout the known world at that time, this, these Jewish people, but they still maintained religious connection to the land and the, and the religion of Judaism. That's God's sovereignly protecting this and, and making this happen. You have also, uh, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, we talked about, um, when we were, I think we were talking about the, uh, in the fullness of time, when we were talking about um, the coming of, um, or the, the, the forecasting, the foretelling of John, the birth of John the Baptist and setting the stage for that and the coming of Christ and how that happened in the fullness of time. Uh, and we talked about in that, that series of uh, talks, we talked about the Greek conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC and what that sort of provided providentially. And that is that you had this, this, um, this ideology, this movement called Hellenism. It's really the Greekification, if you will, of con- conquered peoples, the bringing of Greek culture um, and really cultural aspects of other conquered civilizations uh, to bear on those, uh, those who were conquered. Um, the culture and the language, the Greek language, uh, was, was made uniform. And so you had this, even though it was resisted, there was elements of it that were resisted, there was elements of it that should have been resisted because it also included sort of a syncretistic blending of religious belief and practice. Um, so it, it, there was, there was uh, elements of it, both culturally and religiously, that would completely you know, be against uh, the worship of the one triune God. And there was definitely resistance to that. Nonetheless, it's had a a unifying effect in terms of providing some common cultural connections and a common language. And it was out of that period of time that you had the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if you have Jewish communities that are spread out far and wide, 
But then you have this conquest by Alexander the Great, and you have some unifying principles that are brought to bear as a result of that in terms of culture and connecting them in certain ways. And then the, the connection of language, you have this, this provision of God to make the spread, this accomplishment of this grand global mission possible, more viable. Now, of course, God can do it however he wants, but providentially, this contributed to that, that environment to make that that possible and viable. After that, you have the conquest of the Roman Empire. We talked a little bit about this, but the Roman Empire, um, just prior to the first century BC and on through the time of Christ and the apostles, but that, that empire, as much as it was a problem for the people of God in terms of living under Roman oppression, and it had elements of uh, the Greek culture with the uh, pantheon of gods and syncretistic religion and and some practices that were certainly antithetical to um, the worship of the one true God and to Judaism. Nonetheless, it was, it was characterized in a major way by the, the building and construction of major cities, of major population centers, and it, they, these population centers were connected by this massive network of roads so these just practical sort of realities that, that took place providentially provided an environment, an actual physical environment, in which the gospel could spread. And even, even so far as to say that the, 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 these, these roadways and the empire was under the protection of the Roman soldiers. And so travel, where it might have been in times past, just fraught with dangers from robbers and bandits or fraught with dangers from the difficulty of travel over the terrain, now you have what is this massive roadway system connecting all these major population centers. This is something that wasn't that way prior to Rome coming in. It was, it was something that Rome really brought to, to, to bear. And then you had the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, which was the, 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 there was protection from, there, there was an effort to, to civilize these, the Roman Empire, and to protect people from un, unruliness and unlawfulness. So it, it, provi- it made the way for travel and going to and fro between these cities way more possible, way more reasonable than it ever would have been before. And so you had this dispersion of the Jewish people that had been taking place for centuries all over the known world. I mean, there was Jewish people all over the known world. You had this this sort of this unifying effect of, of Greek Hellenism that kind of had unifying cultural effect and, and the unification of the Greek language. You had this effect of, of the Roman conquest that produced the, sort of the avenues, the actual little avenues, the roadways and the networks of cities, uh, population centers, to provide this practical map, if you will, for, for the spread of the gospel, this, uh, this, this carrying out of this grand mission. And when you come to Pentecost, you literally have the world coming to Jerusalem. I mean, in other words, what, what could have been interpreted as, you know, we're going to have to start day one and figure out how to get all over the world, it starts with actually the world coming to them, in a sense. Because you had these Jewish people who were scattered out, and they all came for Pentecost from all over the place. And you have the reference to that. Even in, in, in the context of the, the languages that they were speaking. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 2, you see there it says there were dwelling 
uh, in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this, at the sound of this, what was like a rushing wind, the coming of the Spirit, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is this that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then it goes on to list them, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The world had literally come to them. And the Holy Spirit had empowered them to speak in a a way that they could hear, that they could understand. It's amazing, amazing providential work of God that even led up to this particular moment at Pentecost. And it's it's in this... It's, it's always the case, you see this all throughout the, the Old Testament history, but it's always the case that what God, what, what we often interpret as something bad, something difficult, something challenging, something that really should not be, something that we want to get ourselves out of as quickly as possible, some kind of trial, some kind of thing that's burdening us, we want to be free from that. Time and time again, you see both in practical ways and in the sweep of history how God uses these things for these purposes of his sovereign, redemptive plan. And in particular, he uses it, obviously, in our lives to refine us and to make us more like Christ, because we know that trials refine us. They make us more like Christ. They make us, help make us mature and complete so that we lack nothing, as James said. So it's really fascinating to kind of just take some different, different components of the sweep of history and really bring it back to this particular moment in Acts chapter 2 in the birth of the church and see how even in all of that, you can see the, the, hand of, the providential hand of God kind of setting the stage for all this. Now clearly, it wasn't just the mission that involved the Jewish people who came from all over the known world at that time. It was certainly going to be a mission to the Gentiles as well. But, but this, this is a great uh, a great example of how God sovereignly brought this together and, and launched this in a way that is really of his own doing and of, of his own work and making this possible. Now, when you look at the, the, the start of this church in Pentecost, um, it, it really is, it's, it begins in, there's really three different dates that commentators would sort of argue for at, at, at the time of Pentecost, really the time of Jesus' death burial, resurrection, and then ultimately 50 days later, the, the Pentecost, um, the, the festival of Pentecost and, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Three dates are, are argued for generally by most evangelical commentators. It's A.D. 30, A.D. 32, and A.D. 33. And um, I think that the most, the most plausible date, the date that most clearly kind of lines up with other anchor points in Scripture is A.D. 30 for the date of Pentecost, the time of Pentecost, the time of Jesus' crucifixion, his burial and resurrection, and then 50 days later, Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church in AD 30. And let me give you some, some sort of anchor points for that, some dates that kind of help us uh, uh, center our thinking around this particular date. We know from archaeological data uh, that Herod the Great, uh, this client king of the Roman Empire, 
Uh, at the time of, he was ruling Judea, at the time of the birth of Christ, he died around 4 BC. And so we know that in, from Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. And so that would place Jesus' birth sometime shortly before Herod's death, which also in 4 BC would have, would have been the, the time frame of, his, uh, excuse me, of Jesus' birth in 4 BC. You have in Luke chapter 2 of his gospel account, now Luke's gospel account in chapter 2 tells us of a time when Jesus traveled with his family. You may remember this, he traveled with his family to Jerusalem, and he basically uh, becomes a missing person for a little bit in the temple because he's, he's asking questions and amazing the people in the temple. His parents leave and didn't even know that he was there. They were traveling with a big group, and they have to go back and find him in the temple. But at that time, Luke tells us he's 12 years old. So we have that sort of that age marker in Luke chapter 2. When, he, when they were in Jerusalem for Passover, he was 12 years old. So if we assume his birth in 4 BC, that would place this point in the, in the temple when he's 12 years old in the year 8 AD. And then you have Luke again recording in chapter 3, verse 23 of his gospel that Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. And, and really there's significance to this, this age. This is the age... Um, that corresponds with the Old Testament requirement that stipulated that to begin your priestly service, you had to be 30 years of age. And, of course, Jesus, the great high priest, this would kind of correspond to that. And it doesn't seem fitting that, that Luke would record uh, a day, uh, an age of about 30 years old but have it swing by you know, two or three years, um, especially given the significance of the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament uh, reference there. At the, at the beginning of priestly service. So you have that, that reference in Luke 3.23. Um, you also know that his ministry lasted about three and a half years. And so that would put, given those, those dates, that, would, those, that timeline, it would put his ministry, I mean, excuse me, his crucifixion and resurrection in 30 AD in about March or April. And then 50 days later, this pinpoints Pentecost in May or June of 30 AD. So you have this kind of, from the past moving forward up to this point, and you have these date anchor points that kind of contribute to or support this 3080 date. But you also have some reference points on the other side of it, working your way back, that kind of gives some, some certainty or some clarity to this 3080 date. You have, uh, for example, um, the Jerusalem Council that is talked about in Acts chapter 15 that we'll talk about a little bit um, in future times together. But that took place in 49 or maybe 50 A.D., uh, and that's when it really fits in the context of Paul's missionary journeys. And we know from Galatians chapter 1 that Paul spent three years in Arabia after his conversion, and then after those three years, there was another 14 years before he went up to the council at Jerusalem. So you have that reference point in Galatians with some time associated with it of three years after his conversion where he was in Arabia, and then another 14 years before he goes to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, which, was, which took place in AD 49, maybe AD 50. So that gives you some more kind of dates or anchor points. Um, and so that would put uh, Paul's conversion in, in about AD 32. So about two years after this AD 30 date of Pentecost. I mean, there's really, if, if, if the date was, was AD 32 for Pentecost, for example, which is one of the dates that's mentioned, the, the events from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 8, plus Paul's conversion, 
and and the three years of him in Arabia, and it just it, it just doesn't add up. There's not enough time for all those events to occur in all in the same year. It just doesn't it just doesn't add up from the standpoint of just looking at all that took place and the events that took place there. So really, the eighty thirty seems to be the most plausible date. It's just a good you know, anchor point for us. When you get to into the to the um, account of Acts, you have basically the first eight chapters covering a two-year period. So that's, that's, that's how you can see, uh, how you need to see these events that are taking place. You're looking at about a two-year period in the first eight chapters of Acts. And, and really, this, you have eight chapters that covers a, a shorter span of time. Once you move on into Acts, Luke begins to pick up the pace and cover greater swaths of time and less, uh, less material, if you will. Um, so the, the scope of his, his records uh, kind of changes a little bit in terms of its breadth and how quickly the, the pace moves. But you have the first two years of the church's history and the first eight chapters of Acts, and you have this spread of gospel witness in the first eight chapters of Acts, beginning in Jerusalem at Pentecost, spreading out into Judea and into Samaria. And then in Acts chapter 9 is when you have the conversion of Saul or Paul, and that launches into this broader world Galatian kind of ministry, although there's this, the persecution of the church uh, lends itself to that as well. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But you have, um, you have in Acts chapter 2, as we've already said, the first 13 verses of Acts chapter 2 talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit in great power. Verse 2 talks about the sound of a mighty rushing wind. You have verses 3 to 13 that give us this account of the tongues of fire, which are actual foreign languages that are being understood. I already read the reference of all the people that were gathered there. It's important to note, we talked about this a little bit, I think, last week, but it's important to note that this is, this is characterized really explicitly in the account here, not as you know, a private prayer language or as some kind of spiritual experience that is very individual in nature. It is miraculous, and it is about the testimony of a, of a witness of the person and work of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, and the connection of that to the Old Testament and the redemptive plan of God that's been unfolding. And it, it, it was them being able to hear and understand this message in their own language. It was clearly miraculous. It drew people in, the sound of it, the the exhibition of God's power was intended by God to, to produce an effect, a sign type of an effect. So it's important to kind of draw that distinction at this point. We'll talk about that obviously more as we get further out into church history and, and some of the uh, more uh, Pentecostal types of uh, um, um, historical movements and that kind of thing. But, but oftentimes, you know, this is this basically what you have to distinguish when you're studying Acts in particular, and you're seeing this unfolding history of the early church, and it begins with amazing, astounding things taking place. Not just the coming of the Holy Spirit and these tongues of fire, languages being heard and understood, people hearing and understanding the message of God's mighty works in their own language. You have the apostles and others being able to perform miracles. Important note that the miracles that were being performed were instantaneous. They were unexplainable, and people saw it and witnessed it and, and attested to it. Even, 
Even those in the Sanhedrin that were trying to squash this whole movement could not argue with some of the things that they were seeing. Same, same thing happened in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, right? It's just, it's just a continuation of that very same thing. And so you have, you have these events that are taking place, but the question that, that needs to be asked and answered, and we'll work our way toward asking and answering that as we kind of continue on in our study, but you have to distinguish, especially when you're studying historical narrative, is what is intended to be normative for us as New Testament believers in the current day? What, what is intended to be prescriptive for us? What is intended to be prescribed practice? In other words, this is what happened, this is what they did, and this should be the same for you now. Or how much of it is just descriptive? It's just describing or telling of the events that took place. It's not necessarily saying, and so this should happen with you. So you should do these things. So anytime we're studying historical narrative like we are in Acts, it's just important to kind of make those distinctions. And, what, and that really becomes a, a bit of the source of the, the tension or the conflict in terms of interpreting Scripture when it comes to people who divide over this issue of sign gifts and miraculous gifts and, and their current place and practice in the New Testament church today, it's, it's this debate or this discrepancy over what is, is normative practice. It's prescriptive for us versus what is just descriptive. And those who would say that we should be, our, our experience of the filling of the Holy Spirit our experience of life in the body of Christ should look just like that. That that means that that's prescriptive. Whereas those who would say, no, that's not the case, they would say that that's more descriptive. There are elements that are prescriptive that you have precept actually taught about as you continue on in the New Testament, but but it doesn't just necessarily mean that what's being described is what's intended for everyone of all time. And that's where the interpretive... Uh, work has to be done, and that's where a lot of the, the interpretive uh, tension often lies, especially in the, the historical narrative of Acts. But you have this event taking place. No one could argue it. It was a massive work and movement of God in the coming of the Holy Spirit and the power that was exhibited, and even the gifts and, and signs and wonders that were being performed by the apostles to to testify that this is a divine message. This is a validation, a verification that this is the message from God. This is the word of God being delivered. And you have to continue to remember that this is a massive new movement of, of God here. This is, this is taking the, the, the Jewish people and the Jewish faith and moving it forward in a massively different kind of way. Just, the, just from a cultural and religious identity perspective, for this to include the, the Gentile world, even though you have clear references to it in the Old Testament, from, a, from a, the mindset of the Jewish people, this is a massive departure from the way that they would have thought, just that one point alone. And so God is confirming the validity of his work, the divine nature of this work through these miraculous demonstrations at the beginning of the church. So you have these divided tongues and people hearing in their own language. Then you have Peter in Acts chapter 2 delivering basically his first sermon, his first speech there in verses 1 to, excuse me, verses 14 to 36. Um, stands up and speaks with boldness 
without hesitating, again, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, and this, you really, to study the sort of the, the progression of Peter's life and ministry after the resurrection of Christ and on and through, you know, his ministry as an apostle who is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you can even see the, the refining, empowering work of God in Peter's life. And this is a, one of the first examples of it, that he stood up and he spoke with boldness and clarity, uh, unambiguous about what the, the message was. He, he references Old Testament passages. He does sort of some Old Testament exposition, making sure that the people there understood that this is not some anomaly that's totally disconnected. This is not some cult movement that doesn't have relevance to the Jewish people. He, he quotes extensively from the Old Testament. He witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, as Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And so he gives testimony to the resurrection of Christ. And then in verse 36, he, he pinpoints, he, he, he comes hard at them with the actual lordship of Christ. It's, he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he, he kind of puts the, the sort of the nail in the coffin, if you will, and have, make no doubt about it. That this is the Lord in Christ, this one who was crucified and was raised again. And it was at that point, it says that people were cut to the heart. Many people asked, what must we do? He called them to be baptized and be saved. Um, Massive conversions, about 3,000 souls, it said, were added to the church that day. So you have this massive event, this massive birth, this massive launch of the church that was attested by signs and wonders and, and the, the ability to speak the message in, in native languages of all that were gathered there. And you have this massive drawing in of people coming to faith in Christ right out of the gate. And at the end of chapter 2, you have this description of the people who were brought to faith in Christ. It gives a little bit of a description of, of kind of how they were characterized at this particular time. In verse 42 it says, "...and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching." And to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's an example, too, where uh, it, you, you get into this normative versus, versus descriptive debate, right? So the question is, it does, should this really be the, the actual outline model for church life in all cases, in all cultures, in all days, in all times? And you have even some that would, that would argue that a church is not really fulfilling its mission as the church according to what God has laid out if there's not a communal aspect to it that is much more tangible than probably most churches are characterized with today. I mean, this idea of them being all together and having all things in common. You'd have people even argue for what is more akin to a communistic way of thinking in terms of the sharing of their belongings with one another. So is this prescriptive or is it descriptive? And what, what is the nature of the, the precept if it is prescriptive? And, and how, how, what, how far does it go? So we'll talk about that more as we go forward. 
But you have this, 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 uh, them coming together, this, this selling their possessions, this distributing the proceeds to all. I mean, that sounds like kind of like a, a true communistic way of living, right? I mean, it's like everybody shared all their possessions all together. So some people would say that um, the nature of the church should be like this and that it should be a church. It, you shouldn't have church buildings, right? You should be, fun, your church should function in just a house-to-house type of ministry. So again, taking this and saying, this is prescriptive. This is telling us how we should do things rather than descriptive. Again, that's where the tension can often lie. It doesn't necessarily just have to be around sort of the more miraculous, sign-gift kinds of de- debates. It can be around just how your church functions, where your church meets, right? That's how things can be um, discussed and debated and disagreed upon, even in this particular passage as an example. But this does definitely, this is descriptive at minimum, whether or not there are elements of it that are prescriptive is, is a little bit of a different discussion. But it is describing them. Now, there's reasons for that. You have all these people who had gathered together at Pentecost, and they're all together, and they were, many of them had traveled in and were away from their homes. And they began to stay there as a result of this massive move of God and people coming to faith in Christ and people needing to learn what is all this about. So they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching so you have this unique time and point in history in this unique place where people are gathered together. And so people were not able to continue to stay there without having resources to live on. So there was this sharing of resources to help facilitate this gathering of people in this ongoing day-by-day, those who are being saved, coming to faith in Christ, meeting together, breaking bread together, listening to the apostles' teaching, trying to understand the implications of their lives. I mean, there's this thing going on here that, you know, we don't have much more than that, but you can only kind of surmise that it's, 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 a, it's a new and unique kind of scenario, a unique kind of situation, and there's some practical elements of them continuing to be able to do that that involve some of these things like having all things in common and, and, taking, and selling their possessions and distributing proceeds to all and and, and, and attending temple together, they're, they're just they're soaking everything up, and they're and so there is this element of the the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the love and compassion and fellowship that that generates. Those are prescriptive things for us, right? We see that throughout the New Testament, but the actual tactical elements of it, maybe not so much in every case. So just some some highlights there that we'll talk about further. The interesting thing about this too is that in, in what, what do we know, <clears throat> even if we go back into the Gospels and we think about um, a, sort of a major experience that just a small handful of the, of the disciples got to experience when they saw the transfiguration of Jesus. They saw his glory. What, how did they respond to that? Who remembers that, that account? Remember Peter recommended setting up tents, I believe. Yeah, let's just hang out here. I mean, this is this is. I mean, this is where it's at. I mean, I mean, I and I can relate to that, right? I mean, I think we could all kind of relate to that that sentiment. But the tendency is, let's not let this experience go away. Let's do what we need to do, physically, practically, whatever, to hold on to what we are experiencing right now. It is powerful. It's palpable. It's real. It's a work of God that is amazing and overwhelming. So you probably had some of that taking place here as well. I mean, it's an overwhelming new work of God in the lives of these people. And it's real, and it's substantive, and it's tangible. Nevertheless, 
what is the mission? Is the mission for them to continue to gather and gather and gather and gather and gather and gather and gather right there in Jerusalem? Not at all. In fact, we'll see that, that that's not at all what happens even in, in the sovereign, providential working of God as we continue to go forward. Well, you get to Acts chapter 3, and you have, again, carrying on with these signs and wonders that the apostles are able to do, you have this incident with this lame beggar, known figure there at the, at the, the gate, uh, the temple gate. He was there every day receiving alms. He was lame from birth. I mean, this was a known figure in that world, in that time, in that place. And he's, he, he's asking Peter and John as they pass by if they have any money for him. And they said, we don't have money for you, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he was immediately healed. And that caused a ruckus, that caused a stir, this, this miracle that took place. His ankles, it says his feet and ankles were made strong. The specificity of Luke is, is really important here. He took them by the right hand and he raised them up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood, I'm in verse 7 of chapter 2, verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So we're talking like, this is a, this is a guy who had been in this post in this spot, unable to walk from birth, and now he's walking and leaping and jumping and praising God. It's immediate, instantaneous, and undoubtable, and everybody who was there could see it. They recognized him, verse 10, as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at, the, at what had happened. And what, what immediately happens after that? This is really the pattern. This leads to an opportunity for the apostles to speak, for the apostles to say, here's what happened, I can tell you what happened, and for them to continue this work of testifying to the power and work of Jesus Christ, not in healing this beggar. It's much bigger than that, and that's what happens. Peter again, uh, Peter and John and all the people were utterly astounded, and they began to ask, and, he, and Peter begins to speak. So you have another sermon there of Peter. And he basically says, I'll tell you what happened here. And he talks about how the, the Jesus Christ, in the power of Jesus Christ, this man was made to be able to walk. And he begins to witness to them about Christ. Again, using that same pattern, pulling and drawing from the Old Testament, giving them context. This is not something that's completely detached from what you already know. This is the fulfillment of what you already know and draws them in, speaking from Moses and the prophets, and testifying just based upon this event of healing this beggar. He begins to teach them the scriptures and how this work of Christ that you're seeing in in the healing of this lame beggar is just a, a, a validation of the truth and veracity of the message of the gospel that we're proclaiming. Well, you get to verse three, chapter 4, and of course... Uh, the Sanhedrin, Sadducees, they're not, they're not into this. So this is when you start to see the, 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 uh, the pressure from the religious ruling body at that time begin to be brought to bear on this new Jesus movement, this new cult that's kind of rising up there in Jerusalem. Um, they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Remember, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. So that one point alone, 
got under their skin, stuck in their craw, and they wanted that kind of message and that kind of teaching shut down. And they arrested them, they brought them into custody, um, and th- they gathered together there and basically are having what you could consider a kind of a mini trial there of, of Peter and John because of their healing. And they, they asked the question, they asked them the question, in whose name or by what name or by what power did you do this in verse 7? By what power or by what name did you do this? And then verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Again, just testifying to the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and testifying to the guilt that they had, that they needed to be be repentant and come to faith in Christ, place their faith in this risen Messiah. They saw the boldness of Peter. They They could not doubt and question the boldness and power with which these men spoke. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They knew that these men, it says, that they knew that they were uneducated. They knew that the way that they were speaking did not reflect how what we should be hearing. We should not be hearing these men speak with this much clarity and this much boldness, and yet they could not deny it. So, at the end there in verse 12 of this encounter, in Acts chapter 4, you have this this pivotal statement by Peter. In verse 11, he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you can start to see the formation there, or the, the proclamation of the, the message of the gospel and the exclusive nature of the saving work of Jesus Christ. There is no other name. No other name. There's no other way. The, the gauntlet is being laid down. No other, no other path, no other way. And when you think about that in light of the climate that they were living in, but even the world that we're living in, and how just speaking with that degree of clarity and that degree of exclusivity, how that lands on the modern ears now. It's not, it's not a popular message. It's a bigoted message. It's a, an offensive message. It's a who-do-you-think-you-are kind of message. But yet that is the message. Why on earth would believers in Jesus Christ want to say anything other than a clear proclamation that you must be saved through Christ and through Christ alone? Let the chips fall. Let be offended. It's not my, not my idea. It's just the truth. And Peter lays the gauntlet down here at the beginning of the New Testament church that this is Jesus Christ, the only means of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The exclusivity of Christ as the Savior is proclaimed here in Acts chapter 4. Well, there's, there's continued uh, work, uh, the, the, the continued teaching, um, again, another reference at the end of chapter 4 about how they had everything in common. 
Um, they were selling their possessions. Joseph, who is also called Barnabas, um, sells uh, a field and brings the proceeds and lays it before the prophets there at the end of Acts chapter 4. And then you have this account in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. So they're having all things in common, and they're selling their possessions. And we have this account of Joseph, or also called Barnabas, who sells a field and brings the proceeds for the disbursement, for the, the, the good of the people. And then you have this account of Ananias and Sapphira, and, and they basically do this same practice, but they do it deceptively. They hold back the proceeds, and they claim that they've given all the proceeds. And what you see there is this deceitful gift. You see it being characterized as them testing the Holy Spirit, and they're immediately killed on the spot. First Ananias, and then Sapphira, she comes in later, and the same thing happens to her because she joins in that kind of deceit. I had a conversation with some students this week. You know, we were, were looking at Acts in a New Testament survey class. And it's just interesting when we see this account, especially when you're, ta- when you're teaching students or young people, and you see that, it's like, that seems a little bit harsh, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, there's been things that I've done, I'm sure, that were way worse than that by comparison, it seems. You know? And I, I mean, it didn't happen to me. That seems pretty harsh. Really, this tests our, our sense of perspective of who we are and who God is and what grace is about. That's one thing that this particular account does. It helps us to remember that none of us are worthy of the grace, of even the sustaining, life-giving grace of God. That we stand before a holy God, especially those who are outside of Christ, But at any given moment, we stand before a holy God, and he has the freedom and the will and the right and the justice to execute his rightful consequence to our actions. We even know that that sometimes his chastisement and his discipline of those who are believers might involve him taking them out of this world. So it, it really does speak to the prerogative of God as sovereign, holy, just, Judge, not our rights to be treated with greater gentleness and kindness, even though we are every single day. Every single breath that we take is a gift from God who sustains us. So it's just a reminder there that, but the, the, the point here is that this brought fear and awe among the people. This is like, this is a serious work of God that's underway, and there was a consequence for them seeking to bring uh, deception into their midst in the work of what God was doing. And it's contrasted really there with what, what Joseph did. Uh, Barnabas, I should say, is a more familiar name for him. Uh, what he did in generously giving all the proceeds for the field that he sold. Many signs and wonders continue to take place. Again, the apostles are arrested there um, in Acts chapter 5. At the end, this continual harassment from um, the ruling religious leaders of the day. Uh, they're brought before them. An angel releases them. Again, more miracles. They're released from this, this public prison by an angel. You have this interesting uh, account here. They're, they're released. They realize that they've been released, and they're, they're out. They, the, the very next day, they go out, and they're preaching again in the temple. So it's like nothing is stopping them. Nothing is holding back their message. Nothing is causing them to to stop doing what they had been called to do and what the Spirit was empowering them to do. Um, they brought, they're brought before the council again because they, they were 
notified that these guys are at it again. Somehow they, they were let out of jail. Somehow they got out of jail and they're at it again. So they're brought before the council and they're rebuked. Did we not strictly tell you, do not preach these things? And you have this important, again, this important statement by Peter and the apostles when they answer them. It says, we must obey God rather than men. And again, if you think about prescriptive Christian practice, and you have what, what, does li- what is life supposed to look like in a fallen world, in a corrupt society where you've got, potentially you've got laws and you've got rulers and magistrates who, who want to invoke uh, practices, even through legal means, that might compel us to disobey or dishonor God. And you have this, this precept here for us to recognize that we are called to submit to those in authority over us even rulers who are corrupt or crooked, insofar as that submission does not compel us or, or cause us to have to disobey God in the process of submitting to them. There is a limit, in other words, to that submission, and this is the limit. So for them, he makes this statement, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And you have this interesting interchange with Gamaliel in this chapter. In verses 34 to 39, you have Gamaliel standing up. Gamaliel's kind of seeing the, seeing the scene, and he's going, you know, um, these guys, I mean, there's, there's some real stuff happening here. Gamaliel is seeing both the effect that their testimony is having on the people, the numbers of people that are coming to faith in Christ, the unassailable veracity of the, the miracles that are being performed and the testimony of those miracles. And he's looking around, he's going, okay, we might want to kind of moderate our approach here. In other words, Gamaliel's seeing that we could have an uprising on our hands, that, that our, our very power base could be completely obliterated by this movement if we're not careful. And so he basically advises the council. He says, he starts telling them about these other instances of these other uprisings, these other movements, these other men that have come on the scene, and they gather a certain following with their teaching or with their practices, and then it ultimately went away. They were overtaken, and it went away, and it's no more. And we stand here today and witness that, that that's gone. Those things are over. And then he says, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. And let them alone, for if this plan or, in, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, an interesting little note there. Gamaliel, who was, who was Gamaliel's known protege? The Apostle Paul. Unfortunately, prior to his conversion, the Apostle Paul didn't take Gamaliel's advice here either. Because we know what Paul, the, the Apostle Paul actually does oppose God himself in this whole enterprise. In fact, we'll see in the conversion account of Paul in Acts chapter 9 that Jesus says, Why are you persecuting me? It's personal. You are opposing God himself. And so Gamaliel's got it spot on in terms of what the risks are here for them. That the opposition that they're leveling here is not, not potentially just an opposition against this movement. and It's not just an opposition against these people, these individuals. We could find ourselves in opposition against God himself. And we see that played out in his own protege, the Apostle Paul. 
that that's how his opposition was characterized by Christ himself. Well, in Acts chapter 6, kind of moving along, and we're going to wrap up here in just a minute. In Acts chapter 6, um, you have the choosing of deacons to serve the people. There was neglect that was taking place. You had these Hellenistic uh, uh, Jews, these Jews that, were, that had kind of adopted some of the cultural elements of the Greek culture um, and Greek practice. And those, so they were kind of, they were not looked upon very favorably by the more devout Jews. And so that was actually playing out. So you see this, this picture in Acts 2.42 and again in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, and you almost had this m- mindset of, man, if we could just get back to the ways of the early church, then how, how great will our fellowship be and how blessed we'll be and we'll just all get along and everybody will have group hugs all the time and we'll be sharing everything and all that sort of stuff. But reality does set in. And you have in Acts chapter 6 this account where there's actual widows, but because they're Hellenistic widows, they're being neglected in the disbursement of these resources and food and whatnot. So you have a segment of the believing community because they were a part of a different sect, an unwelcome sect, if you will, who are being neglected in the giving of these proceeds. And so the apostles say, we need, to, we need to select some men to help us in this service. We need to be devoting ourselves to prayer and to the teaching of the word, and we need some assistance in the disbursement of the gifts so that you have this, this selection of men to, to help serve the people in these tangible ways. You might refer to them or consider them as deacons. They're, 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 they're servants of the people. And really it points to, uh, again, you start to see a little bit of a formation of of an organizational component of the church. How do, how do we organize ourselves? How do we, how do we set up structure or leadership to be able to really carry out effective ministry here? And so you have the beginning of that kind of being set up. You already had the apostles as established authorities um, by virtue of who they were before Christ and being witnesses to his resurrection, um, being part of his uh, ministry while he was on earth. You have them having that authority of leadership and teaching in the church. You have them endowed with miraculous power to be able to perform miracles and signs to validate the message of the gospel. And then you have this other level of, this other layer, if you will, this other augmentation of the ministry of the church in the form of these that were selected to help serve in this particular way. So you start to see some formulation of some structure of servant leadership here. You have at the end of chapter 6, Stephen's ministry. Stephen being one of those seven, and you see his ministry unfold. Powerful ministry uh, with the people, having a great effect. Um, and this ultimately leads to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to spend some time here next week, because I, I, this is a really important and pivotal transition point in the life of the church. So we'll pick up in Acts chapter 7 and, and on into Acts chapter 8 next week. But you have in Acts chapter 6, his ministry being described you get to Acts chapter 7, you see his message. He's also taken into custody, and he delivers basically a message, a phenomenal message, a message that, that, that no one could refute until he gets to the end, and he basically speaks of Christ and his work and the implications of that work. And that, that cuts them to the heart. They're enraged. It says the Sanhedrin, they're grinding their teeth in anger, and that ultimately leads to Stephen's martyrdom. They take him out and they stone him to death. Um, and we're going to talk about that. But this... In the, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, you see where the persecution of the, the church in Jerusalem really gets underway. 
You have some elements of it where some of the apostles were taken before the Sanhedrin. They were beaten. But really, this becomes an all-out wave of persecution that gets underway uh, at the, at, after the, the martyrdom of Stephen. But, but, that's what leads to the spread of the church to Samaria and on to Antioch and lead, paves the way for the spread of the church to the rest of the world, this move of persecution. We'll talk about that more next week. Thank you for hanging with me. We're kind of running fast through this. Um, Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed.